Good morning. Anybody ever caught a, uh, a ball at a baseball game? Anybody heard of baseball? <laughs> couple people, a couple people caught a ball. I want to catch a ball. Closest I came was I was at Wrigley Field and in BP batting practice, I caught uh, like off one bounce, I caught somebody's home run. But that's like it's a batting practice ball. I mean, it's not, it doesn't really count because it wasn't really the game. I mean, I would love to catch a foul ball. Um, I don't know that if I, if I would love to catch it as much as apparently this guy wanted to catch it, because this guy wanted to catch it real bad. He took a ball from a kid! He took a ball from a kid! Like, dude, the, that, clearly he's throwing it to that kid, and the guy's cat grabs it. He's like, that's right, punk. You missed your chance. I was talking with a friend of mine between services, and he said, listen, I'll be honest. If I picked one up, he's like, I, I would keep it. Because I'm 34, and players aren't throwing baseballs to 34-year-old guys anymore. I'm like, that's fair. That's a fair point. But he took a ball from a kid. Not cool, right? And, and I'm sure you'll be shocked to hear this, but the internet exploded. People just freaked out that this guy did this, and, and just came after him, and it can't, this, he's a monster. Clearly, he sells nuclear weapons to third He's like just making this narrative about this guy who just must be terrible because he stole a ball from a kid. Who steals a ball from a kid? There's literally sayings about that. You don't take candy from babies. Or maybe it's something else, but you get the idea. Here's the problem, though. This is not really what happened. It's not really what happened. The Cubs saw this. They felt bad, so they posted a picture of this kid holding two baseballs. One is the signed Javier Baez baseball that the Cubs gave him, and he's holding another baseball. Where did he get that ball from? Well, people that were sitting around in this section came to this guy's defense and said this guy had previously caught three or four foul balls and given them out to the kids in the section, including that kid. That guy had already caught a foul ball and given it to the kid who missed, who missed out on it. In fact, the ball that he caught, he gave it to his wife, and that woman gave it to a kid next to her. But that didn't fit the narrative, right? I mean, I know we're all alarmed, like, wait a minute, everything on the internet isn't well thought out in reason? People jump to conclusions? No. Yeah. We can't understand the whole story until we know the whole story. Right? We can't understand what's going on until we see the full picture. We don't get what this guy was doing, why he did what he did, until we can back up and see, oh, man, that, that makes sense. He's not some monster. The full picture changes the way that we view it. And it's appropriate to talk about that as we wrap up our series on purpose on the life of Joseph. Because as we've been talking about, Joseph's been through some stuff. He's been through some stuff, Right? He's his father's favorite son, and his brothers are jealous, and so they plan to murder him and then dial it back just a little bit into faking his death and having him sold into slavery. Much better. He's falsely accused and thrown into prison. He's forgotten about. I mean, this, he's been through some stuff. But his story's taken a little bit of a turn in the last couple weeks, right? And so we're going to catch you up on kind of where we are here, that Joseph is the second most powerful man in charge of Egypt. Last week, Jerry talked about how he revealed himself to his brothers and said, it's me, it's Joseph. And so over the next several chapters, Joseph's entire family comes to Egypt. He's reunited with his father who thought he would never see him again. But he'd never see him again. They're set up in Egypt. In fact, Pharaoh gives them some great lands and, and brings some of these brothers into 
choice positions uh, overseeing the Pharaoh's flocks. Joseph is really, really good at his job. I mean, really good at his job, overseeing all of Pharaoh's stuff and, and managing these resources that they've saved to care for and provide food for people during this, these years of famine. Um, Jacob, Joseph's father, blesses his sons, and that's significant because it reminds them and us of the promises that God had made to his grandfather Abraham, that he would bless them, that he would use them to bless the nations, that he's made big promises to them. And then Jacob dies and Egypt mourns him, really mourns him as they would a king. He's buried back in Canaan, the land that God had promised to Abraham. So that's where we pick up this story in Genesis chapter 50. It says in verse 14, after burying Jacob, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had accompanied him to his father's burial. But now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful. Now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong we did to him, they said. Now that dad's not here, uh-oh, now we're in trouble. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you, for their sin in treating you so cruelly. Side note, we don't know that Jacob actually said that. In fact, a lot of scholars think that they're making this up right now. That they're like, um, wait, dad's dead. Uh, dad said you shouldn't kill us. Dad totally said that. We, we don't know. So he said, so we, the servants of the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. When Joseph received the message, he broke down and wept. Then his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said. But Joseph replied, it's about time. <laughs> no. I would have replied that. <laughs> says, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. One thing I want to note, this is the first time his brothers have apologized. It's the first time his brothers have apologized to him. I would think that if I had uh, come up with a plan to murder my brother and then relented by just faking his death and selling him into slavery, the, maybe the first thing I would do when I saw him 20 plus years later is, hey, sorry about that. That wasn't cool. Remember that whole, maybe you probably forgot. You probably totally forgot. That time we're like, yeah, for dead to dad, you were dead and you, you, you're a slave, sold you for money. We all went out for pizza afterwards. You totally don't even remember that. I'm sorry for that. I, I think I would lead with that. But this is the first time they've apologized. And I think what we've seen is the progressive weight of the reality of what they've done weighs on them more and more heavily. But Joseph says, in the midst of all that, I love this, verse 20, it's a powerful verse. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. There is so much in this verse, and there's so much that speaks to Joseph's story and to our story as well. And the first thing that this points to is that your story needs a hero. Your story needs a hero, right? Joseph looks like such a rock star here, such a rock star. Like he's been faithful in these incredibly difficult circumstances, and now he's the second most powerful man in Egypt, and he's come up with this plan to save food during these years of terrible famine. He's like not having his brothers summarily executed the first second he sees them. Like he has an opportunity to feel pretty good about himself and to be such a rock star, but that's not how he sees himself. 
because he knows that God is at work in his story. He knows. God's at work in his story. Think about all the way back to Genesis 37. God gave Joseph dreams of what was to come. God blesses people around Joseph because of Joseph. He helped Joseph interpret the dreams of others, and that's eventually what got him out of prison. He was with Joseph in such an obvious way that others, like Pharaoh, noticed it. He gave him understanding about the coming famine so he could prepare Egypt. He gave Joseph a family, reunited him with his father, and restored his relationship with his brothers. It's very clear language here. In just chapter 45 alone, in the span of four verses, it says, it was God who sent me here ahead of you. God sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive. So it was God who sent me here, not you. God has made me master over all the land of Egypt. Joseph isn't saying, hey, look what I've accomplished or look where I've come or, or look all the stuff that I've been able to achieve in my life or look at me. He goes, no, God is the one who pulled the trigger on all this stuff. God is the one who made this happen. It's a powerful picture here. In fact, it's summed up really well by saying the Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did. Joseph was clearly not the hero of his story. He's clearly not the hero of his story. Joseph couldn't have made this happen himself, and he understood that. It's so easy for us to believe the lie that our lives are a story about us, that we are the hero in our story. We want to be our own hero, but that's not the way we, we get what we really long for, the, the story we truly want. We're drawn to this sense of individualism that I can make my own way, I can make my own path, I can accomplish my own things, I can fix this myself. We want to do things our own way. We think we know better. We think we can fix what's broken. We think we can find good apart from God. But folks, going our own way is what gets us in trouble. If I'm honest about the moments in my life when I struggled most, those are the moments where I said to God, I got this one. That never plays out that way. But maybe, maybe just, maybe life isn't just about my desires and my expectations. Maybe, just maybe, someone else knows better. And that's what Joseph understood. Joseph knew he wasn't the hero of his own story. He knew that God was the hero of his story, of his story. and he knew that because he knew God. He knew God. He spent time with God. He had faith in God. He trusted God. He was able to endure this stuff, as we've talked about in previous weeks, because he knew God. Now, he didn't know everything about him. It's not that God came to him and said, Joseph, what do you think about this? I'm going to run this plan by you. God doesn't do that. But he understood some of the character of God. And that helped him endure. It helped him trust. It helped him have faith. It helped him give credit where credit was due instead of trying to take it on himself. We're able to see God as the hero when we know him, when we understand him, not just know about him, but know him. It's easy to know about God. It's easy to, to to come to church and to kind of go through those religious motions and know about God, that, yeah, I believe God is real. But, but when we know God, that relationship matters in our life. We, we talk with him. We spend time with him. That's what we're all about as a church is knowing God, knowing that God cares about you, that wants you to have a relationship. He's not distant 
and far away. Instead, he is close, he is personal. I love Proverbs 19, 21. I mean, it says, you can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. Joseph understood that. Seeing God as the hero of your story instead of you, it helps you have that kind of confidence that that I can make plans, but ultimately God is going to do what God is going to do. That God is the infinite Lord of the cosmos. He created everything. That, That the best that I can do pales in comparison with the smallest thing that God does. He's that big. He's that big. God is the author who sees the whole story when the characters whose steps he guides cannot. So what keeps you from seeing God as the hero of your story? What keeps you from seeing God as the hero of your story? Do you know him? Not know about him, but do you know him? Second thing that we can take away from this that we can see that's true in in Joseph's story and in ours too is that your story has conflict. Your story has conflict. Joseph says, again, in Genesis 50, 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. You intended to harm me. He's acknowledging hardship. He's acknowledging hurt. He's acknowledging pain. You intended to harm me. There will be those moments where life is difficult, life is painful. That's just the reality of being alive. But God had a plan. God always has a plan. The ups and particularly the downs developed Joseph into the man God had created him to be and wanted him to be. Because our pain always has purpose. Our pain always has purpose, right? What it does is it crystallizes, it it refines, it sharpens. It helps us to really understand what's real and what's not. A false God doesn't sustain Joseph through the stuff he went through. The pain of his experience refined his view of God and his faith. Weak faith, misguided faith, couldn't possibly have been enough for Joseph. It wouldn't have stood up under the, the weight of all that he went through. A false God couldn't sustain Joseph. Only a real God could. Only a true God could. What Joseph's conflict, what this pain, what this this hardship, what this stuff did was help him weed out what's real and what's not. Because it's in hardship, I mean, where we start to really take a a real look about what's what's going on, right? Where we realize kind of who our real friends are, who the people that really love us are. We see that stuff through trial. And God is refining our faith, not because he wants to see us fail, not because he wants to see us hurt, but because he wants us to come out the other side clinging to him. What we don't understand is that when Joseph was going through this difficulty, when we go through pain, when we hurt, God doesn't rejoice in that. God hurts with us. Frankly, it is God's great love that he would allow people that he cares about to hurt in order that they learn what he needs them to learn, in order that we learn what he needs us to learn. We are quick to take credit when our lives are good. If I said something we've done, but we're quick to blame God when things take a turn and don't work out the way that we had hoped. When we write our story, there are no hard parts. Frankly, we wouldn't write very good novels because there'd be no conflict. It would be just this steady arc of like, everything's fine. When God writes our story, struggle leads to growth. 
when we surrender to that and lean into that, we come out the other side stronger, better than we went into it. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite writers. And he was writing about a time in his life after his wife had died where God was challenging him. He said, God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or, or love in order to find out their quality. He already knew it. It was I who didn't. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize the fact was to knock it down. The only way he's saying that God could get his attention was to poke on the thing that he had faith and hope and trust in to show him that it wasn't real. To show him that it wasn't as substantive as he thought it was. Our pain always has a purpose. God allows us to go through stuff in order to get our attention and to bring out that change in our hearts. Because when he does that, right, is we have to work through things like what, if we feel abandoned by God, but when we engage in that moment, when we allow God to work, when we listen to him, we realize that it wasn't God, but our image of God that failed because we had crafted something that's false, that's lesser because it's more convenient. God loves us and will poke on the things that we hold on to in order for us to let go of them to hold on to him. My youngest daughter is three years old. She is a handful, but she is adorable. I mean, look at that face. She's just, she's adorable. This is how she looked Thursday morning. We took her into the hospital. She had, a, she had to get, have surgery. She's three. She's just this tiny little sweet girl, and she just looked so small sitting on that hospital bed. And my wife and I, our heart went out to her because she was so afraid. In fact, she kept telling us that she's really scared. It's heartbreaking. Because we can't help her to understand. We, we can't put it in, in words that will make sense to her that, that there's a reason for this. In fact, we, we couldn't even walk with her down to the surgical center. And she didn't want to stay on the bed because she was so upset and just so overwhelmed. Because again, she's three, like her, her brain can't compute what's going on. And so one of the nurses has to pick her up and she's just screaming. And they take her down the hallway like that where Bethany and I are sitting there. And it's like, could I, is there a sedative that I could get? Is there something for us? It was so hard. I know it's a routine procedure. I know, I know that stuff intellectually, but she doesn't. And I can't get her to understand that. And it, it hurts me to watch her go through it. But she had to have her tonsils removed and, and her adenoids removed because she'd had tonsillitis twice in the last 18 months. Very, very bad an infection that had caused inflammation. She had a hard time breathing. There was swelling in her throat and it was a big deal. And the only way to alleviate that was the surgery. The only way to take care of that, the only way to make her better, the only way for her to experience life the way we hoped was for her to go through this. Sound familiar? I took no joy in allowing her to experience that fear. In fact, it hurt me, but I knew that that pain had purpose. And the only way to get her through to the other side was to go through it. That's what God's heart for us is. That's what God's heart for us is. He takes no joy in the things that we, we suffer through, just like we see in the story of Joseph, but he allows us to do it because he wants us to come out the other side, clinging to him, surrendering to him, holding on to him, because that's when we experience this, this life that we are desperate to know. That's when our story plays out more the way we, we hope. How do you see the purpose behind the pain you're experiencing? 
What's God trying to teach you? What's he trying to do in your life? What's he trying to do in your life? Third thing that we're going to take away from Joseph's story that works for us is that your story has many chapters. Your story has many chapters. When Joseph says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good, he says there was more to this than what happened. He says, he brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. There was, re- there was reason, right? My, the, the worst moments weren't my entire story. Our, our, our worst moments don't have to define our story. There's more to it. The chapter you're in right now doesn't have to be your final chapter. It doesn't have to be. What's your favorite movie? You know, think, what's your favorite movie? All right? Imagine if that movie was half as long. Imagine the second half of the movie is just deleted and doesn't exist. What are you left with? A bad movie. You're left with like all of the boring, discouraging parts. You're left with all the hardship that the character had to work through that they were going to overcome in the end. You're left with all the boring character development and there's no climax. There's, there's no build to the story. You're left with just the boring stuff. If, you, if, if your favorite movie is The Breakfast Club, you're left with, man, people were just awful to Molly Ringwald. What a, is this movie, this movie about bullying? The whole movie tells the full story. Why would you stop your movie halfway through? Why would you stop? The good part's still coming. The chapter you're in doesn't have to be your final chapter. It doesn't have to be. Joseph's worst moments weren't his final moments. God kept his word. In fact, Joseph's story ends so much better than it started. The first chapter we learn about Joseph ends with pretty poorly. Hey, here's this guy, Joseph. He had some dreams. His brothers wanted to murder him and sold him into slavery. Like that, it's that quickly. That's Genesis 37. It ends so much better, so much better. And I believe with every fiber of my being that God is capable of transforming the worst circumstances that you're experiencing into something so much better. I believe with every fiber of my being, I've seen it over and over and over and over again where God has worked. God has done powerful things in people's lives who had no hope or didn't think it was possible. That is God's specialty. But what if it doesn't get better? I mean, I believe it can, that our present can be radically different as God works in us. But what if it doesn't? Does that mean God isn't good? What if you suffer for a long time? What if your situation doesn't improve? And those are fair questions. A big pet peeve of mine is when people say, it'll all work out, or everything will get better. Now, if you say things like that, I don't think you're bad people. I think sometimes we get put in situations where people share their hurt, and we're like, I don't know what to do. And I want to give some sort of hope. And so we say that. I don't think, like I've said, I'm sure I've said that too. Like I don't think you're monsters. But the problem is those are not true statements. You cannot tell someone it will get better. We don't know that it will. We don't know that it will. So where's the hope if that's you? Where's the hope if that's how someone you love feels? Well, the hope is that there's more to come. The hope is that God has promised there's more to come. We see the foundations of that promise played out right here in the story of Joseph. We see those those promises right here. Not only does his father pray these blessings over his children 
that they're going to become these 12 tribes that will become this nation that God will bring his rescuer out of. But Joseph points to that rescuer, that Joseph is, is a picture of the rescuer to come. Because just like Joseph, Jesus was left bloodied only to, be, only to, to rise to a position of authority at the right hand of his father. Just like Joseph, he was a favored son who was rejected and cast out. Just like Joseph, Jesus was falsely accused only to be proven right. Just like Joseph, the one would step in on behalf of the many to rescue and protect and to save all those who came to him. Joseph is a picture of the salvation that God has promised and the reason that we can endure, the reason that we can say, my circumstances haven't improved, what's my hope here? We can say, it will one day, if not in this life, then in the one to come. It will. That's what Jesus has secured, a forever victory. It can be hard in the short term to go, I'd love a little victory right now if I could. Could I get some of that victory, please? But given the choice between a short-term win and a forever win, forever sounds pretty good. It's not bad to want a short-term win too. It's not bad to want your life to improve. It's not bad to want to see your marriage be healthy. It's not bad to, to want a job if you've been unemployed for a while. It's not bad to want those things. But it means that we can endure that stuff, that we can walk through those hard times, that we can walk through pain and know that God has won in the end. I can look to that hope and know that it will get better one day. It will. I love that how Genesis 50, 20 that we keep talking about points forward to something Paul says in the New Testament in Romans 8, 28, where he says, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God. Good according to who? Here's what I can promise you. It's not good according to us. But then again, how do I know what's good? I mean, I think I do, and I like to lull myself into this false sense of security that's like, yeah, I think I have a pretty good sense, but I don't. I don't know. But God does, and God works it out for my good. And frankly, I want the guy who made me to be the one who decides what's good because he's going to know better. He's going to know better. Great faith is the product of great fights. Great testimonies are the outcome of great tests. Great triumphs can only come out of great trials. God allows us to go through those things because he knows the final chapter, his final chapter has already been written. And I love, it. I love this writer, David Foster Wallace, and he says this, you can be shaped or you can be broken. There's not much in between. I think in our context, what that means is that God is going to do what God is going to do, and he can do it by ripping my hands off of something or by gently molding and shaping me. Really, it's up to me about how much I fight him on it. There have absolutely been times where God has had to break something in me because I'm not willing to let go of it. And he doesn't do it to hurt me or to cause pain, but rather to say, I love you so much, I want you to hold on to something better. Hold on to me. Hold on to me. God is the irresistible force. He's going to have his way, whether we want him to or not. And so are we going to let him do it? Are we going to invite him in? Are we going to fight him on it? Which chapter are you in right now? Are you in a good one or are you in a painful one? 
Is this a season of joy or is this a season of struggle? How is God working in your life right now? I want to encourage you to ask him, God, what are you trying to do in my life? What are you trying to teach me? Ask him. Invite him into that and ask him. God, teach me. He's doing something. And if you don't know what it is, ask him. I've had those moments too. Do you believe the words of Genesis 50, 20 to be true? Are they true in your life? Are they true in your life? Where God tells us that, that though harm was intended to us, he, he works that all for his good and your good. Do you believe that? Do you know God? Do you really know him? Because that's what we want for you as a church. That's why we exist, is to know God and be known by him. To understand what that means, there's a longing in our soul that we cannot fill any other way, and we want to point you to the answer, to the, to the way to quench that longing, which is a relationship with the God who created you. The reason we talk about next steps all the time is because that's what we care about. How do we help you take one more step in that journey? And maybe that's being part of a life group, or maybe that's being serving here in another way, or maybe that's jumping into the Ridge Reading Challenge. Whatever that is, we want you to take that next step, not because we pat ourselves on the back and go, look how awesome we are, but because we want people to know what it means to be known and loved by the God who created them. What's your Joseph story? We all have one. What's yours? Take a minute and watch Leslie's. My name is Leslie, and I've been attending the Ridge for seven years. Facing 12 years for dealing meth, I was in my darkest place. I had struggled with addiction to drugs and alcohol for 20 years on and off. I um, had used drugs to fill voids in unhealthy relationships, to fill the void of not feeling loved by my father as a child. I had lost a child to a death and to um, just numb the pain of all of that. For me, one was never enough. Nothing or no one was gonna stand in the way of me getting high. I had lost my kids to DCS, and that wasn't enough to make me stop. It wasn't until I found myself in a jail cell, broken, lost, alone, and ashamed of where I was at, that I hit my knees and I begged God to please change me, that this isn't what, who I wanted to be anymore. This was my rock bottom, and this was God sitting me down to evaluate my life. During my four months in jail and my six months in a treatment program is where I really began to strengthen my relationship with Christ. It was once I realized that my way had only led me down a path to where I was at and that I surrendered my life to Christ did I really change. I quit holding on to all the old stuff and that's when I really started to change from the inside out. I give all the glory to Jesus Christ that I am the woman that I am today because without Him I would not be clean and sober. Today, with God at the center of my life, I am able to give back to others. I'm able to volunteer in the county jail and in the treatment program that I went through where I'm able to lead Celebrate Recovery. I'm also a part of the REC program where I'm able to show others God's love through my story. Today, my path is anything but dark. Today, my path is filled with joy, hope, and love. And because of God's mercy, I am redeemed. This is a real woman. She's right here with a real story. This is what we're talking about. This is what we're talking about, that God works in the pain, he works in the ugliness, and he brings something beautiful out of it. Leslie, thanks so much for being willing to share your story with us. 
That was awesome. What would you want people to know? God used all that ugly to get my attention, to show me that I needed to turn to him in those times. And when I turned to him is when he changed me and rewrote my story. God's awesome. (laughs) And I didn't realize how awesome he was until I fully surrendered to him and began to follow him. That's my Joseph story. What's yours? What's yours? Man, I wish you could drop the mic. I should ask how expensive it was. (laughs) That's why we're here. We all have a Joseph story. You've heard Leslie's. What's yours? 